Good morning. It's good to be here. Thanks, Wes, for leading us in worship. And uh, thank you. I'm sorry. Was that Wes? Yeah, it was Wes. And Josh and Chris. I'm talking to them on the phone, and I finally get to meet them face-to-face this morning. So it's good to put faces to names. And all of you, thank you, Austin, for letting me use your car this weekend. It's a blessing to be here at Church of the Valley. I wanted to share a little bit about myself. My daughter, Aria, is here. Ari, can you stand? She's the blonde. She looks just like me. <laughs> I have actually three blondes and one darker uh, hair uh, daughter, and so I wish they could all be here with my wife, Misty, but they're back home in Hawaii, and uh, excited to be able to hear all about the time here. But I was born on Oahu, went to college uh, when I was 17. I actually didn't want to go to college. I didn't want to leave the island. kind of had my own way, my own plan. And my parents sent me off to kind of reform me because I was getting in a lot of trouble. And they sent me off to a school that was, that was pretty strict. And uh, it, was a, it was a Christian school. But it was there, second semester of my freshman year, that God got a hold of my heart through a roommate that just lived his life of, of walking with Jesus and uh, didn't ever judge me or condemn me, but actually loved me the way Jesus loved. And it was powerful. And uh, I remember that day that God, God got a hold of my heart and uh, surrendered to him and then ended up traveling with an evangelist across the country for three years and uh, went to tr- different churches across the country and saw God do some powerful things through the preaching of the word and worship week in and week out. And then moved to Guam and served at Harvest Ministries for almost 15 years. And, uh, and again, another just life-changing experience being on a small island, 10 by 30 miles and 155,000 people, small community, primarily 90-some percent Catholic, um, but able to see the power of the gospel at work in, in changing people's lives and turning their eyes from darkness to light. So we're there for almost 15 years, met my wife. Our four children were born there. And, uh, and then we moved here to Utah in 2017 to help in a church plant work, revitalization work in Riverton. And we're there for three and a half years. And the desire was always to, to go back to Hawaii at some point and, and uh, help with churches there. And so we've been in Hawaii since actually 2020, right before COVID. So we landed in Hawaii and didn't get to see anybody. And it was kind of a bummer because we couldn't even see our family for months. Um, but that was all part of God's plan, and he led us there, and we were helping in a church in a revitalization and be able to see that church being able to reach their community, and so it's been good. Now, through that, God's, uh, uh, we've kind of adjusted some things, and I've actually joined real estate, and I've been doing that to help pay the bills, and I want to kind of use that as an illustration because real estate is, is kind of hard, especially in Hawaii. There's about 10,294 agents on one island. And everyone thinks, wow, you're a realtor, you make a lot of money. Well, it's not that easy. And, and in reality, you actually have to prove your value. And so in the beginning, you're, I'm learning, I'm sitting in these classes, and I'm learning, actually, I want to be someone's trusted advisor. I want to bring value to an ever-changing market, an ever-changing market, right? You're experiencing that in Utah as well. And so how do I help people through crazy transactions? How do I help negotiate? How do I help problem solve? And, and let me tell you, I can't just do that sitting at home and just thinking about it. I mean, I can't just do it sitting at home just pretending that I'm going to do it, although it's helpful to go through scripts and talk through it. But I have to actually get out there and do it. I have to start meeting with people. 
I would write 10 notes to I would write notes to 10 people a week, and I'd get on the phone and try to meet with five people in my sphere a week, and I had to prove that I actually could do it. I would get out there and pass out flyers. I'd knock on doors. I'd sit at open houses on Sundays and prove that I could actually do it. In fact, is sometimes proving my worth can be a hard thing. It can actually feel a little overwhelming. Sometimes I felt I was in way over my head, and I said, Lord, what are you doing? What am I doing? This is not really what I'm called to do. But how do I prove that I was actually a legit real estate agent? I mean, in the beginning, I started following people on Instagram and YouTube, and I'm like watching them like, wow, these guys are like pretty awesome. And I try to be just like them. But I remember a breaking point for me. I'm going to use this as a way of introduction to our text this morning. But it was, it was a breaking point for me was coming back to actually some spiritual truths out of our text this morning that that I knew from my own journey, my own spiritual walk. Fact is, I learned this when I was traveling with an evangelist way back in, in 2000. Some spiritual truths that brought, helped me in the workplace. I could not be anybody else. I actually had to be who God made me to be. From a worldly perspective, you prove yourself by how much you produce. How many sales do you have? How many listings do you have? But here in John chapter 15, if you turn your Bibles there, Jesus is actually challenging his disciples and us to prove that we are his disciples. But this morning, it's not based, this text, as we talk about proving it, it's not based on my performance or my production. It's actually based on something greater. Our brother read the text here. I'm going to read it again, verse number eight, just so that we can kind of get our minds on it. But it says here, by this, my father is glorified. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, maybe Matt last week talked about the context of this. You've been walking through the book of John, but he's teaching on the vine and the branches, and and, and literally he's walking his disciples from the upper room, the, the Last Supper, to the place of Gethsemane. And so this is the setting. The disciples and Jesus, minus Judas, because he left and fled into the night, remember that, were walking along the roads into the southern southwest part of Jerusalem on the east side, and Matt might have mentioned this, the the groves of olive trees and the public olive press that stood on the edge of that Kidron Valley. That's the context of this, and so he's giving them a real-life illustration. And so last week, maybe you talked about how the Father is actively working in our lives. He's fulfilling the work that he planned to do from the very beginning, and and there's an active work, and it's flowing out of our lot into our lives but it's actually because of the connection that we have to him, right? Remember that word that Matt used last week? We are connected to him. And so I just want to give you a few points this morning that help us know the Father's heart and how he ultimately gets the glory. He tells it pretty clearly, and it's a little bit repetitive, 
But I often am repetitive with my own children and even with myself. I kind of preach to myself a lot and say the same things over and over again because I, I kind of sometimes don't get it the first time. And he's kind of doing that again to remind us about some truths. And so number one, how do we prove it? Well, he tells us bear much fruit. It's real simple. But he isn't telling to do just good works. He isn't, he isn't telling us to go out there and so just tell people all that you're doing so everybody can see you. Hey, church, go out and show everybody your works. Hey, in this pumpkin palooza, just show everybody all the good things. No, actually, the purpose of fruit bearing is to bring glory to God, the Father. A branch that bears much fruit brings honor to the one who cares for the vine. Notice, the, notice that bearing fruit is really not about us. He, all, he tells us in, in, this, in this verse that it's ultimately for the Father to be glorified. The love we show to others through our, our acts of kindness or works of service to the Lord is not an end in itself. We, we, don't, we do not do good works just to do good works, though they are essential and they flow out of us. One uh, commentator says this, Branches and clusters have no self-seeking, no aim outside the vine, and the husbandman's glory, all other aims are cast out as unworthy. So he says, by this, my father is glorified that I bear much fruit. And Matt talked about the pruning that happens and the correcting that happens. It's all part of this process. But ultimately, when we think about proving and the fruit that comes out, it's for the purpose of bringing glory to him. And so what does he mean? All through the New Testament, he says, we are his workmanship. We are his children. It's a privilege to be called his. We are made for a purpose, and the benefits come from living out that purpose. It's to make him comfortable, not ourselves. It's, it's to press ourselves in for his service, not press others for our gain or our benefit. Now, it's interesting in real estate, it, it can easily be that way. I'm actually going to do this so that I can benefit a certain out of this out of this transaction. We may be enriched, but we must resist the craving for wealth. We serve the king and him alone. We cannot take the best for ourselves. For offering the best to him as his portion is our call and is our privilege. So what does that mean? I think as his people, we need to be reminded to constantly renew our commitment to produce fruit for his table. Remind ourselves of this purpose. There, there is a joy of knowing that, that I was created to be this way, that branches prove their healthy connection through their fruit, and, and they see that relationships that are growing towards God. It's actually when the storm comes, you experience this peace in the middle of the storm, is because we ultimately know it's really about God. I think it's important to note that Judas had already left the disciples. Remember Jesus said, he broke the bread and said, this is who will actually betray me, and he ran into the night. Now notice that Judas' relationship to Jesus had actually been very close on an outward level. Outwardly, it looked like he was just part of the group and, and he was doing everything right. But, but now Judas was actually on the way to destruction. It would seem natural that in talking about branches that did not bear fruit and were taken away, 
allowed to wither, picked up, thrown down into the fire and burned. Jesus was actually thinking of somebody. Judas, who had once stood in very close connection with him and left him and was on his way to destruction. And that's a real example that just happened. And so he's saying bearing fruit is connected to or motivated by bringing glory to God. But then he tells us, number two, abide in my love. Now, we talked about abiding in Christ uh, last week, but he mentions this a few times in this passage about abiding in my love. Verse nine is, the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. The best commentary on this is actually in chapter 13. If you look back in, in verse number one, it says, right, Uh, as Jesus is going to be washing the disciples' feet. But he says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I mean, during the, the most like important night, the most sacred night of all, it's like Jesus is looking back to the first time that he chose his disciples And then even looked back before them, before the foundations of the world, when his father and actually the spirit chose them. He puts it all together in just these simple words, I have loved you. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's pretty powerful. As he's telling them of his love towards them, abiding in his love, actually it entails becoming constantly, constantly absorbed in experiencing his love. We're pulled by by the love of Christ and and we move in desire to please him. We wrap ourselves in his love. We pursue his desires. How do I do that? Well, he says it again in, in, in chapter 17. If you flip a couple chapters over and you're gonna get here in a few weeks, but he makes mention of it in the priestly prayer This was the love that the father spoke of for his son in verse number 23 and 24. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus was the object of his Father's love before the foundations of the world. This is the love. The love the Father had for the Son is the love that we are to abide in. Actually, Paul himself knew this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul was controlled by the love of Christ. He said in in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. This is the love. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, abide in my love. As the Father loved me, I love you. 
Live in this love. Abide in this love. It's not abiding in this love is not being controlled by legalistic lists of rules, but it's actually really understanding his amazing love for you. Do you know his love? His death on the cross for us is the ultimate example, giving all of himself for us so that we could experience this relationship and have eternal life. In that same way that, we, that he's loved us, we are to give our all and, and no longer live for ourselves, but to abide in, in his love is to empty myself of my own desires and, and to produce fruit, not on my own, but to let his love flow through me for others. It's a focus not on me, but on him. The love taught in our culture is not God's love. Musicians sing about love but it's actually often confused with, with physical desire and lust and, and selfish interest. It's not about others. It's, love is actually acting to meet the needs of someone else. And Jesus displayed this in chapter 13 when he, when he started to wash the feet of the disciples and to serve them and to demonstrate to them true love, selfless loving I think of it this way. I, don't, I can't really imagine God's amazing and relentless love towards me, but I, I don't know if you've ever been to a, 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 an athletic game in Hawaii. Volleyball is a big deal in Hawaii, and so I've coached for a long time, and my daughters play, and, and we go to the University of Hawaii, and we support their volleyball program. 10,000 people, they love volleyball, but they always have this cheer meter. Like, you have to cheer so loud, and everybody gets into it. It's just kind of a thing they do in Hawaii, but but you sit there and you watch the thing go crazy and my kids just get up and start screaming and they love it. 10,000 plus fans break the cheer meter. And I just think of that, just that, that meter just breaking and this picture in my head, I'm realizing that there is more intensity and depth of the father's love for his son is going to match the same depth and width and height that Jesus actually has for me and if that doesn't blow your mind, we should just probably stop because it's pretty amazing that nothing can separate me from the love of God through Christ Jesus. Nothing. And here's where the rubber meets the road, and, and, we, and I think our brother prayed this this morning, but it's, it's actually when the trials and difficulties come or when, we're, when we feel all alone and nobody knows and nobody cares about the situation we're in that we, we actually start to doubt this love that God has for us and we question it. Or, or maybe there's a trial that seems so overwhelming. We had a friend that I taught in Guam, and she moved to Hawaii, and just a, a few weeks ago she passed away. She had battled cancer for almost six years, lost her leg, and then the cancer spread, and it just was hopeless. She has a daughter the same age as my son, and, and yet through the six years, I, was at be, I and many others, thousands of people, were able to watch and experience how she, she herself experienced God's love for her. To experience the love of God in a trial that seems hopeless and, and knowing that the end is, not, is going to be separation from your husband and from your little daughter and you won't be able to see her grow up, but to know that she will be with her father was a conviction. But those hardships actually lay, the founda lay as a foundation for our understanding such an awesome truth this morning. 
her abiding in the love of, her, of Christ ended up being what fueled her to impact many people who were struggling the same way. It was what grounded her. She knew that Jesus loved her. If someone were to ask you today, hey, can you lose your salvation? Or, hey, is Jesus really with you in a hard time? Hey, how do you know that God is really in control? Life seems out of control and chaotic. I mean, just turn on the news. I mean, what would you say? I mean, can you answer these questions with full confidence because of a foundational understanding of how much Jesus loves you? I mean, can I just tell you something this morning? Jesus doesn't lose any sheep. He's too powerful. He loves us too much. He leaves the 99 and he goes and pursues the one. Jesus doesn't abandon us. He loves us. God the Son is in control of all things, and, and that includes all the details of your life. Whatever you're going through, he loves you too much not to be involved. Jesus really did die for you because he loves you as much as the Father loves him. Do you believe that? Paul did. That's why he wrote this in Galatians 2. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus intentionally loved his disciples according to the way that God, his Father, loved him. And we know that Jesus loved his disciples because he taught them. He's teaching them something right now before he goes to the cross. He, he protected them. He's guiding them. He sacrificially served them. And, and he used his power and authority to do these things. And in some way, the Father also did those things for Jesus and Jesus then for the disciples after that. Spurgeon says this, Beloved, you do not, dare not, could not doubt the love of the Father to his Son. It is one of those unquestionable truths about which you have never dreamed of holding an argument. Our Lord would have, have us place his love to us in the same category with the Father's love to himself. We are to be as confident of the one as of the other. The Father loved the Son with a love that has no beginning, no end, close and personal, without measure, unchanging. And Jesus says to us, I love you the same way. It's powerful. And so he says, abide in this love, like believe it and live it. But he says, then this is what fuels us to do the next point. He says, obey my word. In verse 10, he says, if you keep my commandments, if you keep the word that I'm giving to you, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. There is a connection between this amazing, uh, re, uh, no beginning, no end, relentless kind of love and how we are to live. Spiritual fruitfulness or obedience actually marks the life of a real genuine Christian because it proves that we are his disciples. Many people profess to follow Jesus. We live in a, a very religious place and, and yet show no desire to actually want to obey him. And those who continue to do that is just like Judas. They, they, they themselves will be proven to be false branches. They were never connected to Christ. They were dead. 
in verse 6. And again, this isn't a legalistic deal. It actually flows out of love. We, 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 we have to measure up and prove up to, to your pastors and others by doing this. Like, hey, they're asking people to go serve, so I better go serve so that everybody else knows that I'm, I'm serving and I'm listening. No, it's not that kind of thing. The reality of really understanding the, the amazing love of God for us that when he says he will never leave us or forsake us, we believe it. So when life gets hard, what do we do? We obey. We do the next right thing that he tells us in his word. That's, in this last year and a half, it's been really difficult. It's been a, a year and a half that I've never, ever experienced in my life. And so even in real estate, you're just kind of like, I don't know, what am I doing? And, and this has been like our little motto. It's like, I'm just going to do the next right thing. <laughs> I don't really know what else to do. And all I know is to just take God's word that's a lamp to my feet and a light to my path and, and to go, okay, I'm just going to do the next right thing that he tells us. And you just cry out to God and say, God, speak to me. Help me. Help me to know your way. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Well, as in John chapter 14 and verse 15, this is a new commandment that he says. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. In verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. What Jesus actually did and taught that evening in the upper room was, was emphasizing the words and the commandments of Jesus mainly in love for others. Sacrificial service for, for the disciples, trusting love for God the Father and the Son, washing their feet, demonstrating this firsthand, this new commandment of loving one another as he has loved us. Look at chapter 13 and verse 34. He says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And again in chapter 15, for whoever's speaking next week, I'm not going to get into their message, but he says this in, in verse 12 to 14, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus demonstrated this. And in, in chapter 14, at the end of, end of the chapter, in verse 31, he says, but I, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. I mean, I think we, we would do that as parents. I mean, a, a, the greatest thing about, uh, a, of our children is when, when they do obey us, there's actually this, this feeling of like, man, my children really do love me. They're listening to my voice, and, and there's a cool connection there. But in a greater way, he's saying, obey my words. This is actually, I'm modeling this for you. I'm obeying my Father and I actually want you to do the same. And the commandment I'm giving to you is that you demonstrate this, this obedience by sacrificing. 
He, he voluntarily sacrificed himself to, to the death, his bitter death on the cross, and, and demonstrated the most unbelievable display of obedience to his father. It's unbelievable. And so as Jesus is looking back on his whole life of obedience, he says, I have kept my father's commandments. I did. I mean, he's not speaking as if he didn't do anything, and he's actually saying, I have done it and am abiding in his love. And one of the simplest ways in obeying the word is just going, God, every morning when you wake up and you say, God, would you speak to me? And whatever you share with me, would you help me to obey? That's actually how he starts by the spirit of God starts to produce the fruit that he wants to do in our lives is this willingness and obedience and surrender to whatever he says. He prompts us by his spirit to do things sometimes we would never even think of on our own. And it's pretty amazing. But then lastly, he says, experience my joy. Real joy flows from your life. In verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, if you have kids, it's, sometimes my kids obey, and they're not really happy about obeying. <laughs> it's like they're doing it, but like they're stomping to their room and letting you know that they don't really want to do it, but they're going to do it. It's not always joyful, right? But he, he tells us, I'm telling you these things because I actually do want you to experience some some joy that's not just temporary happiness. It's not just something that's just going to last for a little bit, but it's going to remain in you. When the disciples failed to abide in the love of, of Jesus, it, they failed to keep his words, and this disciple would not experience the, the fullness of joy that Jesus promised. Carson says this, no one is more miserable than the Christian who for a, for a time hedges in his obedience. He does not love sin enough to enjoy its pleasures and does not love Christ enough to re relish holiness. He perceives that his rebellion is uh, iniquitous, but obedience seems distasteful. He does not feel at home any longer in the world, but his memory of his past associations and the tantalizing lyrics of his old music prevent him from singing with the saints. He is a man most to be pitied, and he cannot forever remain ambivalent. It's like, you know you're supposed to obey, you know that, that God loves you, and yet you're like, oh, but I really am not really enjoying it. He says the joy of Jesus isn't the same as just this, this temporary happiness or excitement. It's not the joy of the world. It's the joy of Jesus is, is not a life of ease. It's actually the, 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 the exhilaration of being right with God and, and, and consciously walking in his love and his care. And he's telling us, you can have this joy. Fact is, we know that in Psalm 16 11, he says, in his presence is fullness of joy, and his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, he, he's saying this to his disciples, and it's really important because they needed this. They were actually troubled and filled with sorrow. Look at verse 1 of chapter 14. He's telling them, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
He says it again in verse 27 of chapter 14. He, he tells them, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then in chapter 16 and verse six, he says, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So I actually feel right at home with the disciples because my heart's troubled a lot. But he, he, he just calmly encourages them and he's telling them, listen, don't let your heart be troubled. When Jesus spoke of his joy, Nobody ever asked him what he meant. They did not look at each other and like, what is he talking about? To, to them, it seemed just natural that the master would make reference to his gladness. From, from this, Morrison says this, from this we gather that the joy of Christ was something they were perfectly familiar with. It wasn't like they were going, what are you talking about? No, because his presence just exudes joy. And so when he says this, that I want you to experience my joy and that the joy, your, my joy will be full in you, they understood it. This is the result of abiding in his love and obedience flowing from this abiding relationship. Real branches celebrate connection. They aren't weary of the demands of fruit-bearing you don't have to do it on your own. You're renewed by the juices of connection. You joy because they make him happy. Consider our vine. Jesus' joy didn't come from this world or from his work. It came from bringing his father glory. I want to read in closing, Max Lucado has, has, has written a book about heaven and then I want to pause and just have you consider some questions here at the end. But he wrote a story of a, a certain king, and it goes like this. No man had more reason to be miserable than this one, yet no man was more joyful. His first home was a palace. Servants were at his fingertips. The snap of his fingers changed the course of history. His name was known and loved. He had everything, wealth, power, respect, and then he had nothing. Students of the event still ponder it. Historians stumble as they attempt to explain it. How could a king lose everything in one instant? One moment he was royalty, the next he was in poverty. His bed became at best a borrowed pallet and usually the hard earth. He never owned even the most basic mode of transportation and was dependent upon handouts for his income. He was sometimes so hungry he would eat raw grain or pick fruit off a tree. He knew that it was like what it was like to be rained on, to be cold. He knew what it meant to have no home. His palace grounds had been spotless. Now he was exposed to filth. He had never known disease, but was now surrounded by illness. In his kingdom, he had been revered. Now he was ridiculed. His neighbors tried to lynch him. Some called him a lunatic. His family tried to confine him to their house. Those who didn't ridicule him tried to use him. They wanted favors. They wanted tricks. He was a novelty. They wanted to be seen with him. That is until be, being with him was out of fashion. They want, then they wanted to kill him. He was accused of a crime he never committed. Witnesses were hired to lie. The jury was rigged. No lawyer was assigned to his defense. A judge swayed poli by politics handed down the death penalty. They killed him. 
He left as he came, penniless. He was buried in a borrowed grave, his his funeral financed by compassionate friends. Though he once had everything, he died with nothing. He should have been miserable. He should have been bitter. He had every right to be a pot of boiling anger, but he wasn't. He was joyful. Sourpusses don't attract a following. People followed him wherever he went. Children avoid sore heads. Children scampered after this man. Crowds don't gather to listen to the woeful. Crowds clamored to hear him. Why? He was joyful. He was joyful when he was poor. He was joyful when he was abandoned. He was joyful when he was betrayed. He was even joyful as he hung on a a tool of torture. His hands pierced with six-inch Roman spikes. Jesus embodied a stubborn joy, a joy that refused to bend in the wind of hard times, a joy that held its ground against pain, a joy whose roots extended deep into the bedrock of eternity. And Jesus said he wanted that joy to be ours as well. The connection with its purpose and filling should produce full joy in us. We bow our heads this morning. I just want to just ask you a couple of questions, and I'm going to open it up to just respond to the word. The band's going to come, and there will be prayer folks up here that if you need someone to pray with, would love to invite you. But just some simple questions. Are you a branch that's connected to the vine? This morning, are you intentionally, actively abiding in the love of Jesus? Are you obeying his word? Are you listening to his voice? Have you been drawn away by things that will pass away and you've become distracted from obedience? Or maybe the question is, is really motive. Are you obeying his word because he loves you? Or are you obeying just because you want everybody to see that you're obeying? Because that doesn't produce joy. Maybe life has been difficult and hard. And so the question this morning is, are you experiencing his joy even in the difficulty? People turn on us. Hurts are deep. Jesus said he wants that joy to be ours and to experience his joy and that joy would remain in us. Father, thank you. Your love is deep for us because your love is deep for your son. And you sacrificed your son for us. Thank you for a love that knows no end. We struggle loving people because we are so selfish. We actually want things our way. But when we look at your love, and we've looked at your love this morning, it's just amazing 
no beginning, no end. Nothing can separate us from your love. No hardship, no difficulty, not even death. So we thank you this morning. Thank you that we don't have to prove it on our own. Thank you that the way we prove to be your disciples is by abiding in your love, obeying your word, so that your joy would remain in us. In your name we pray. Amen.